Well, this morning, I um, have a topical message here, and um, before, before we look at any specific passage, um, I have a, a few examples, scenarios that I want to share, and I'm not really going to comment on them, I'm just going to share them, and uh, have you all see if you can see a common theme here in these stories. Uh, there's four of them. Three of them I made up. And one of them is true, and you don't have to figure out which one is true, but they, they all do relate, though, to a, a similar theme. So the first story, these are all very brief. A young child was told not to eat the cookies in the pantry, but to wait until after dinner. While his mom was busy in another part of the house, the young child sneaked a cookie before dinner and ate it. He later felt guilt for what he had done. So that's story one. Story two, a group of friends go to the movie theater to watch a movie. The movie is full of excitement and adventure, but unfortunately it also has some very inappropriate scenes. Sensing where this scene from the movie was going, one of the friends got up and left. And then the third story. A Christian young woman was raised in a home where it was taught and expected that women should wear skirts or dresses to church. Having never been taught any different, she believed this to be right, and further, she believed to wear pants to church was a sin. While on a vacation due to some wardrobe complications, through much wrestling in her heart and mind, she wore a pair of pants to a Wednesday night church meeting. And then the last story. A recent convert who, as an unbeliever, used to curse and swear like a sailor, continues to curse and use the Lord's name in vain. But he is such a babe in Christ that he doesn't even know his speech is dishonoring to the Lord. So there's four stories. Does anybody sense a theme here in these stories? The conscience, yes. All of these stories have one thing in common, or at least one thing in common. They're all dealing with the conscience. And that is the topic that I want to consider this morning, the subject of the conscience. And I may allude back to some of these stories a little bit, but really um, I'm not going to get super detailed in, in description in the message. Uh, that's more just to kind of set the stage. But um, my purpose for speaking on the conscience is threefold. First, I want it to be a reminder and a warning to all of us about the great harm in ignoring the conscience. And then secondly, I want to give some general thoughts or biblical principles regarding the conscience that I trust will help uh, the believer as we strive to live godly lives. So to understand more about the conscience, I think, will help us as we seek to live godly lives. And then third, and finally, I want to finish by pointing us to the glorious truths of the gospel and how that relates to the conscience. So basically, those three purposes that I just stated are the outline for the message. So a warning, some general thoughts, and then the gospel. And there will be... Um, some subpoints, you might say, under some of those. But before we get into any of that, um, we need to understand what the conscience is. I mean, if we're going to jump right into warning about the conscience, we need to understand what the conscience is. And some describe the conscience as a moral compass that we have, that's given to us by God, a moral compass. You think about what a compass is. It points you towards north. And so if you know where north is and you can align yourself with something that's absolute and it, it helps to guide you. So a moral compass, it helps to guide us morally in uh, decisions about right and wrong. Well, one brother pointed out that it's easier to define the conscience by showing what it does 
rather than by just giving a lexical or dictionary definition. And so I thought maybe we could do that is look at a passage of scripture that I feel like really shows us what the conscience does. And that's in Romans chapter 2. So if you want to turn there, we'll look at a few verses here from Romans 2. So in Romans 1, Paul addresses the, you might say, the man without the Bible and the the downward spiral of sin. Um, And then in Romans 2, he begins to address um, the man with the Bible, the Jew who had the law of God. Um, But then he begins to compare the two. And in verse 14 is where we're going to pick up here. Romans 2, verse 14, and just read a few verses. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And we'll stop right there. So here in this uh, brief passage, we have a general definition of the conscience and a description of the purpose of the conscience. And the general definition that I'm referring to is found here in verse 15, where it says that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Now, again, we need to keep this in mind. He's speaking about the Gentile. And he already said the Gentiles who do not have the law. So we're talking about people who, in our language, we'd say have never heard or read the Bible. So when those people have the law written on the heart, well, what is that? That's the conscience. Um, Everyone has this law of right and wrong written on their hearts and it may be messed up and not in line with the Bible and we'll discuss that later on but everyone has this law of moral right and wrong written on the heart that's the conscience they're born with that but then second notice the work or the purpose of the conscience described here And that comes a little bit later in verse 15. And it says, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So the conscience is a witness that accuses us in areas where we've done wrong. And it defends us in areas where we've done right. Think about it. If you know that you've sinned and done wrong your conscience begins to accuse you in that way. It doesn't let you go. You know that you've done wrong. But yet if your conscience comes to you and says, stop, don't do this, and you listen and heed that and obey that, what comes following that? Peace, right? There's a sense of I've done right as you heed it. So your conscience accuses or else defends us. So the negative work, obviously, would be the accusing. The positive work there is the defending. Well, the conscience is given to us by God. It's not, it's not just uh, something that we learn from our parents or something of that. I mean, our parents certainly influence uh, the conscience, but it's given to us by God. It is another way that we are made in the image of God. And uh, one brother that I was listening to uh, speak on this brought something out that I had not considered before. And that is this idea that the conscience, how it relates to uh, being in the image of God. Think about this. In Genesis chapter 1, after God made everything, he looked at it and did what? Declared that it was good. God has this same moral compass that declares when things are good and when things are not good. We're made in his image. So after he makes 
the world and everything in it. In Genesis 1, his response in verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So he looks at it and he declares, that's good. But then in the next chapter, we see that he declares that a few things are not good. Um, First, in uh, chapter 2, verse 17, uh, where we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he's, um, I'm kind of deducing this from that, because he tells Adam not to eat of it, we could say that's not good for man to eat of the knowledge of, tree, uh, of good and evil. Um, but then second, and this is where it actually says it's not good, in verse 18 God says it's not good for man to be alone. So again, we see here this idea of God looks at something and says, that's good, and he looks at something else. That's not good. We're made in God's image, and he has given us a conscience, and that conscience is doing the same thing that God did there in Genesis 1. It sees things, says, that's not good, that's not right, and other things, that's good, that's right. It's a compass. It's something to help guide us um, in our life. Well, um, before we get into the warning here, uh, there was a story that I felt like was a, a good illustration. Um, in the early 80s, there was a, a plane crash um, where, as I was reading about it a little bit more this morning, a uh, plane was coming in for landing. It was obviously very poor weather, foggy, um, and it had descended lower than it should have. And um, the uh, altitude warning started going off. And um, apparently the pilot did not take any corrective action and ended up running into a mountain, actually hit a few hills, and um, of like 200 or so people that were on board, only 11 of them survived. And just thinking about the illustration there, you've got a warning sound going off. Pull up, pull up. You're too low, you're too low. No action is taken. It's kind of like ignoring the conscience. No action's taken. It'll be all right. Or maybe they're busy with something else. I don't know. But nonetheless, disaster strikes. Why? Because they didn't respond to the warning uh, that was going off. And so that's a good lead-in here to the next points that I want to look at. And that is the warning about ignoring the conscience. So the first point, the conscience should not be ignored or violated. And we're already in Romans, so flip over to Romans 14, towards the end of the book there. And um, we'll consider here a few verses from Romans 14. Verses starting in verse 20 and reading down to the end of the chapter. It says, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat um, or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So notice here the issue that Paul is addressing, uh, is specifically in this passage, is in verse uh, 20, and it's food. Uh, He's talking about food, and he says, all things are clean. So, we could deduce from that, that means there is no sin in eating, right? If he says, all things are clean, there's my liberty, let's eat. But not quite. He goes on then in verse 23 and says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith, is sin. So when we put these two together, we see this. If you are doing something that violates your conscience, then for you, it is a sin. 
If you cannot do something in faith, meaning with a clear conscience, then you should abstain. So if, if there's any prompting, any voice there saying, no, stop, wait, and you press through, then for you, that is sin. So the warning is, don't violate your conscience. Listen to it, just like that alarm on the plane. What if the alarm was wrong? on that plane, and they were really 10,000 feet over the closest mountain, and the alarm went off, still would have been right for them to stop and investigate and make sure, play it safe, in other words. That's the right action to take. When your conscience prompts you, stop, listen, pray, consider before pressing on. Because, Paul says here in verse 23, um, Whatever is not from faith is sin. In other words, it is a sin to violate the conscience. But then taking it a step further, the conscience can be permanently damaged through ignoring and violating it. And I'm referring to repeatedly ignoring and violating it. And for this, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, verses 1 and 2 says this, uh, so 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. This is quite the description here, this idea of being seared as with a branding iron. Um, what happens when something is seared? The idea of searing something is that it burns. It burns through the tissue and it permanently alters or damages the nerves so that you can no longer feel um, what you once could feel. It's tough. It's thick. Um, it's kind of like a callus on your skin. You know, how, how do calluses develop? They develop through repeated activity or friction or something that at first it hurts and then pretty soon it develops this tough skin, and then you no longer feel it anymore. And sometimes that's a good thing. Honestly, if you've ever played guitar, you know, when you first start learning, man, that hurts. Sometimes your fingers are almost bleeding, pressing in on those strings. But then you get toughened up to it, and you no longer feel it. So you're able to play the guitar without pain. Well, in matters of the conscience, that's not a good thing. We don't want to develop that searing, that callous, that lack of a sense of feel anymore. And if we ignore the conscience repeatedly, that will happen. Violating your conscience is like that. At first, your conscience speaks up to you. But if you keep ignoring it and keep ignoring it and going against it, then pretty soon you stop feeling or hearing your conscience. You become dull to your conscience's voice, and you'll no longer hear or feel your conscience. So the warning again, don't ignore, don't repeatedly ignore your conscience. Um, we're in First Timothy, let's turn back uh, to chapter 1. And verse 18 and 19 says, this command I trust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So the end result of repeated ignoring of the conscience is that your faith will suffer shipwreck. That's the way Paul describes it here. It says, keeping a f uh, faith in a good conscience which some have rejected. In other words, they've rejected faith in a good conscience and suffered shipwreck 
in regard to their faith. In other words, it's death for the soul. If we stop listening to our conscience, it will not end well. Hebrews says it pretty strongly in Hebrews 10.26. He says, for if we go on sinning willfully, and I'm going to interject there, sinning willfully, an example of that is when your conscience is telling you something and you ignore it. That's willful sin. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. So again, this is, this is strong language. It is a warning. Heed your conscience. Listen. Don't press through. Well, a third point here on this topic of warning about ignoring the conscience is that the passage of time will not clear the conscience. Think about this. Do you have something from your past that is still a bother to your conscience? It won't get better with time. You may be able to dull the voice, drown out the voice of the conscience, kind of numb yourself to that, but your conscience will not be cleansed by just ignoring it and letting time pass. Um, I was reading, just in my daily Bible reading earlier this year in Genesis, and this really stood out to me. Um, You know the account of uh, Joseph's brothers. They get angry with him. And they throw him into a pit. And they were going to kill him, but they decided instead to sell him into slavery. And he goes to Egypt, and they go on their way. They tell a lie to their father that he had been killed by a wild animal. And then the next time they see Joseph is 20 years later. And they don't even realize that they're seeing him. But he, Joseph knows. Joseph is now a ruler in Egypt And his brothers come to Egypt to buy grain because of the famine there in where they were at. And um, Joseph actually has them put in prison, it says, for three days. But they don't know that it's Joseph. And here's what they say. So again, keep in mind, 20 years have passed since they uh, committed this great evil against their brother. It says this in Genesis 42. Um, says, then they said to one another, so the brothers to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They don't even know that's Joseph. And the first thing that comes into their mind is, this is God punishing us because of what we did 20 years ago. It's like the passage of time doesn't cleanse their conscience. The guilt is still there. And that's the way it is for everyone. Your conscience, again, you can numb yourself to the conscience. You can drown out the voice of your conscience. But the guilt is still there. Uh, I was listening to a message by Ryan Fullerton and took down this quote. He said, the conscience will never be cleansed by you distracting yourself. And that's a, it's a wonderful reminder to us. You can distract yourself. You know, if, if your conscience is bothering you, you can flip on the TV. You can turn on your iPhone, iPad, whatever, listen to some music, and just try and drown out that voice. But it's not, your conscience will never be cleansed by just ignoring and distracting yourself. Well, let's move on some general truths about the conscience. And the first general truth that I would bring out here is that the conscience is not inerrant. In other words, it's not um, without error. It needs to be trained, and it can be weak. So earlier we said that it is a sin to violate your conscience. If your conscience is warning you about something and you press through and do it anyway, that's sin. However, what if the action is actually biblically permissible? What then? What do you do 
If your conscience is saying, sin, don't do this, and the Bible is saying, this is actually permissible. Well, we looked at this there in Romans. You should still listen to and obey your conscience. Because remember, Paul said, whatever is not done in faith is sin. But also, we should recognize that our conscience may not be right in the matter. So obey your conscience, but also understand my conscience needs to be informed. The Bible, um, or your conscience can be overly sensitive and bother you about things that aren't sinful. And the Bible calls this a weak conscience. Um, in uh, 1 Corinthians, I think I'm going to turn there. I wrote the verse down, but it, it has a little bit of context. Um, it's interesting that a lot of these passages that Paul uh, writes dealing with the conscience, the immediate context of it is food. Food sacrifice to idols. Um, but it has a much broader application to us than just this idea of food. Um, so I'm, I'm, I want to look at verse 7, the 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. But to get the context, I want to start reading uh, in verse 4. He says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols... We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. In other words, he's saying, all these false gods, they're not real. They're, they're false gods. Um, there's only one God. And then verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So he's saying even if there are idols regarded by the world, you, Christian, only have one God, God the Father. And uh, then verse 7 here, he goes on, he says, However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So, again, trying to get a little understanding here, he's saying that there are some people, Christians, who still think of those gods in, in one sense as being real and not wanting to worship, not wanting to serve those gods because they want to serve the one true God their conscience is bothered about eating food because they feel as though they're worshiping that God and so they they can't do that in faith and Paul says their conscience being weak is defiled if they eat that food their conscience is weak so our conscience is not inerrant Paul would say no that's, that, that is permissible, but your conscience, you have to listen to your conscience. But secondly, your conscience can also be affected or dulled by sin. Maybe there are things that your conscience should be bothered by, but due to sin, it has been dulled. This means you may do something and your conscience not bother you, but it could still be wrong. And I'll just interject this hypothetical scenario that I presented there at the first of the foul-mouthed young man. That would be an example of that. The, the person using the Lord's name in vain, that's not right. Even if his conscience isn't bothering him about it, it's still not right. Um, his conscience isn't functioning correctly in that scenario. Well, in both cases... The overly sensitive conscience, the one who is bothered by things that the Bible says are permissible, or the conscience that's been dulled by sin, in both cases, the conscience needs to be trained. It needs to be informed. Well, praise God that he has given us a conscience. 
But remember that sometimes our conscience can be wrong. It needs to be trained and it needs to be calibrated. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. So how do we train the conscience? Where do we go to for training of our conscience? What is the absolute standard that we calibrate the conscience to? You know, there's, there's lots of options out there. We could consult the world, could consult society, we could consult books, we could consult our parents, we could consult the church, religious leaders, Well, there is only one absolute standard in regard to the conscience, and that is the Bible. The conscience should be taught and trained by the word of God. Um, In 1 Timothy 1.5, this is a familiar verse. It says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So one of the goals of godly instruction is a good conscience. So through godly instruction, we learn what things we should pursue and what things we should avoid. In other words, we learn godly character, who we should be, and godly behavior, how we should act and what we should do. And to the extent that we walk in godly character, in godly behavior, we will have a good conscience. But our conscience does need to be calibrated on a regular basis. It's not just about doing your best to try and live according to the Bible. It needs to be tuned to the Bible. The Bible is the absolute standard that our conscience should be calibrated to. If we're not in the word regularly, we're not going to know what the word says. We have to be in the word to train the conscience as to what is right and what is wrong. Um, David says of the Lord in 2 Samuel 7, he says, your words are truth. And then Jesus said the same thing in the high priestly prayer, your word is is truth. Sanctify them in the word. Your word is truth. So what is the absolute standard? There's only one, God's word, and it is truth. Um, Years ago, I used to work for a medical supply company um, that provided um, oxygen and other medical equipment to people in the home. And uh, there's these machines called oxygen concentrators. And a lot of people thought that they actually had oxygen in them. They didn't. They had a special device that would take the air from the room and it would separate the gases. So separate the nitrogen from the oxygen and then just let the oxygen pass through. And if done correctly, it could get near, not not exactly, but near 100% oxygen. But these machines, the filter system, could begin to um, not function correctly, and the oxygen purity would go down. And so when we were in the home checking these uh, machines, we had to have an oxygen analyzer. And we would hook the analyzer up and test the purity of the oxygen coming out of the concentrator. But the problem was our analyzers had to be calibrated because they weren't always Um, accurate either. And so the way we would calibrate them is we would get a tank of oxygen that was 100% pure oxygen. And you would put it on there and you would turn it on. You would let it kind of stabilize. And if it came in below 100, then you start turning it up until it said 100. Basically, you were telling the analyzer, this is right. This is pure. So then when you take it and hook it up to the concentrator, then you know, okay, I've calibrated this thing. It's accurate. Brethren, that's what the word of God is to us. It's that absolute standard that we have to keep going back to and calibrating so that when we come across situations in our life and in the world, we know this is right, this is wrong. If we're not doing that, then just like the oxygen analyzer, it can get off. 
And it can start saying that something's okay when it's not. Or it might alarm and say that's not right when maybe it is. It needs to be calibrated. Does the Bible call something a sin? Then we should calibrate our conscience according to the Bible, and we should recognize it as sin too. You know, think about this. Our culture is constantly informing us or trying to inform us about what they say is right and wrong, right? That happens all the time. The culture says there's nothing wrong with living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before marriage and committing acts of immorality because, after all, how are you going to know if this relationship's going to work if you don't try it out first, you know, kind of a test period. The world says that's fine, that's good, that, that might even be wise to do that. The world also says, um, and this is oftentimes pushed, that homosexuality is perfectly normal. It's not a sin, it is a disease. Um, it's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I'm reading ahead here. Um, it's something that is, is normal. You know, God made men and women in this way, and they should, uh, they, we shouldn't be telling them not to act according to the way that God made them. That's normal, what the culture would say. And the culture is oftentimes redefining sin. Perpetual anxiety is not sin, it's a disease. And if a coach gets angry and yells at his players, it's not anger and lack of self-control. It's being passionate and competitive. Brethren, if we're not in the word regularly, we will be influenced by our culture. The Bible is very clear on these things. I will grant there are some things that the Bible isn't super clear on, doesn't speak into, and for that we need, like Andrew said earlier, there are some things we have to say, I don't know. But there are other things that are really clear. Immorality is a sin. Homosexuality is not normal. That is uh, a result of the fall. And anger and anxiety and lack of self-control, those aren't just normal behaviors. They're wrong. They're sin. We need to be calibrating ourselves regularly to the word. The world is going to influence you if you are not in the word regularly. But also, it is through the word that we are able to instruct our conscience on matters where we are weak. Maybe there are things that are bothering your conscience where there should be liberty. It is through reading the word and studying the word that your conscience can be strengthened and it can be trained. So maybe there is something that there should be liberty in, but you're bothered by it. Then study the Bible and see if there is liberty, then you can walk in faith that I'm obeying God in this. And there's, there's liberty in that. And if you're able to do it in faith, it isn't sin. And so it's through the word that our conscience can be trained. Well, finally in this general principles about the conscience, it is possible to have a clean or clear conscience. And Paul uses this language in more than one place. And the first one is in uh, Acts 24. Um, trying to remember who he's talking to because there's several, several accounts here where he's talking to different ones. So this is him speaking to Felix in Acts 24. Um, but in verse 16, Paul says this, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. A blameless conscience. Paul is saying he's striving for this, to always live with a blameless conscience. And then later in 2 Timothy, um, Paul says, I've got to turn there real quick. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, 
He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. I serve with, I thank God whom I serve. I serve God with a clear conscience. This is Paul speaking. Is, it, is Paul the super saint that we're never, gonna, uh, we're never going to achieve what he did? Well, there certainly are some things that we're not going to do um, that he did. But Paul also says he's chief of sinners. You know, this is not Paul the sinless man. This is Paul the chief of sinners. And he says, I have served God with a clear conscience. So the question naturally is, how is this possible? What can we do to maintain a clean and a clear conscience? And we've already talked about some of it, and I just have three brief points here. The first is, always heed your conscience. Always listen and obey your conscience. We already talked on that. When there is a check in your heart, stop. Stop. Don't press through. Play it safe. Don't be like the pilot who ignored the warning and disaster struck. Always heed your conscience. Second, keep your conscience tuned to the word. Know what the Bible says. Let that be your absolute standard. Be in the word. And then third, and this is one we haven't talked about, confess sin. Whenever there is something that is bothering your conscience, make it right. Did you say something unkind to your brother or sister or to your wife this morning? Confess it to the Lord and ask for forgiveness from the person that you wronged. Make it right. Keep short accounts with God in these things. Confession of sin is vital to having a clean and a clear conscience. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's through confession of sin that cleansing comes, brethren. It's as we, as we repent turn from sin and confess it as wrong, that our conscience can finally be cleansed, cleared, and the guilt of our conscience is removed. Keeping a clean and a clear conscience is not about living a perfect life. It's not sinless perfection. Keeping a clean and clear conscience is about accurately identifying areas in our life where it's not right, and then being quick to address it and correct it. That's what having a clean and clear conscience is, and that's the idea of keeping short accounts. Is there some area in my life where God's prompting me that this isn't right? Then correct it, make it right, confess it, turn, and go on. You could say, I I haven't lived perfectly, but I've sought to always obey the Lord. If he points something out to me, I want to walk in it. If I stumble and fall, I want to repent. And go on. That is what it means to be living your life with a clear conscience. Well, what if we've tried to do all the points we've looked at so far and still our conscience is bothering us? We've sought to listen to and to obey our conscience, we've sought to tune our conscience to the Bible. And we want to be informed by the Bible. So we're in the word. We've confessed sin. Whenever there's something that we're aware of, we've confessed sin. And we've tried to keep short accounts with God. But still, there's a sense of guilt. What do we do then? Well, this leads to the final point of the message. And that is the gospel is what ultimately cleans and clears our conscience. It is not through just doing outward things to try and be right with God. It's the gospel that cleans our conscience. Hebrews 9 says this, 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. So what is it that cleanses the conscience? The blood of Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works? That is where we go when the guilt of sin is there. It's not about, okay, make myself better, you know, do a better job next time, and go through, check, 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 there, I've done all this. No, it's running to the cross. It's running to Christ. That is where our conscience can be cleansed, can be cleaned. Um, I want to turn to this other one in Hebrews 10. Um, verses 19 through 22. This says very similar thing to what, what I read earlier from Hebrews 9. Therefore, so I'm sorry, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this idea of drawing near, where are we drawing near to? You know, it's drawing near to the very throne of God. Well, why, how do we have access there? It's because of what Christ did. The veil was torn when, his, when he died on the cross and his sin, our sins were placed upon him. The veil is torn. The way is opened for us to come in. How then are we able to have a clear and a clean conscience by the blood of Jesus and our, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water? Think about that hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the idea of washing away sin, but I think guilt, the guilty conscience is, is understood there too. What can cleanse my guilty conscience? The blood of Jesus. Brethren, no amount of religious activity will cleanse our conscience. No amount of remorse you might feel really, really, really bad for what you did, but that's not going to cleanse your conscience. It is only through the gospel that we can truly have a clean conscience. It is as we bring our sin to the cross that we can finally and fully have cleansing and forgiveness. And I thought um, the account from Pilgrim's Progress uh, says this so well. You know, uh, Pilgrim, or Christian, begins the book with a burden upon his back, this big weight upon his shoulders. And what is that? It's sin. It's the guilt of sin. He's, he's an unbeliever, and he's come under conviction of sin. And he's going about this journey with this heavy weight on his shoulders. And it says this, He, that is Christian, ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom, a, a tomb. I'm interpreting it from old language to more modern language. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up uh, to the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders, and fell uh, from off his back, and began to tumble, and so continued to do, till it came to the mouth of the tomb, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. That's, that is the picture of forgiveness of sin in a clean conscience. When you come to the foot of the cross, and you see what Christ has done for you there, he paid for your sins. It's not as though there's this idea that, you know, if you do everything just right, then maybe you'll be accepted. No, the sin has been paid for. And when we see that, the guilt, the weight of the sin is released. And as, as Bunyan describes it, rolls down the hill into the tomb where it's no longer seen. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There's a couple of hymns that I thought of that describe this so well. The first one from the hymn, It is Well With My Soul. I think this is verse 3. It says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Not some of your sin was placed upon Christ, and now you have to struggle, and you have to atone for the rest. No, all of it. My sin, not part of it, but all of it, was placed upon him on the cross, and we bear it no more. And then I also like the, the second verse from the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above, where it says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You see, brethren, through just meditating on the gospel, your guilt of your conscience is cleansed. For the one who's truly put their trust in Christ, if you are meditating and looking at what Jesus has done, that's where you're going to find help. Yes, we do need to heed our conscience. Yes, we do need to confess sin. Yes, we do need to tune our conscience to the word, but we need to be at the foot of the cross. We need to be meditating on what Christ has done for us there because that is where the cleansing of the conscience is going to come. Well, why don't we close in prayer here? Father, we thank you for giving us a conscience, Lord. Thank you that we are not um, just left to try and figure things out on our own, but you've given us uh, a conscience to help guide us. And more than that, Lord, you've given us your word to help us to see what's right and wrong. But Lord, thank you most of all for the blood of Christ Thank you for salvation from our sins. Thank you, Lord, that we can have a clean conscience. Lord, that we don't have to go through our life with guilt and with just a, a weight hanging over us of sins that we've uh, committed, um, even though we may have confessed them and repented of them, just that guilt hanging upon us. Lord, thank you that there can be cleansing. There can be for true forgiveness in Christ. So Lord, please have mercy upon us. Help us, Lord, in these days to be living holy lives, to be living lives that are are pointing to Christ. Pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.